0: I was really taking my cues from the visual world around me, and, and I would go to the grocery store in graduate school to come up with ideas for what I wanted to do, and that remains a resource for me. When I don't know what to do next, I go shopping, and I take a notebook with me, and I walk up and down the aisles looking for inspiration.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linoway. For today's episode 153, we have Heidi Cody, who is on to, of course, talk about her development as an artist, but her current project is Climate Toothpaste. Again, you can find that on Indiegogo, and we will be talking about that in the last chunk of the show, so... Please stay tuned for that. Of course, if you're new to Studio Break, I just want to let listeners know it is a blog, a podcast where we have a variety of different artists. They come on and I interview them about their studio practice. Each of our episodes have images of the artist's work, links to their website so you can find out more information. And of course, there's plenty of them, so check them out. You can look at the archive feature, which is on the left sidebar, and scroll month by month. You can check out all the podcasts that you missed, so please do that. You can also follow the link to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast so it's really easy to stay up to date with what's new with Studio Break. You can be sure to follow our Facebook page and like it. Again, we do provide some updates and announcements there, so please like it. You can also follow our Tumblr account, that's studio-break.tumblr and last but not least, please tweet us at Studio Break and of course we always love seeing artwork there so please say hello at Studio break and with that out of the way our interview with Heidi is coming up so stay tuned welcome to studio break Heidi Cody how are you
0: I'm doing wonderfully thank you
1: and where are you today where are we speaking with you from
0: well I live I live in Vancouver Washington which is just outside of Portland Oregon
1: Awesome. And again, we have kind of been catching up a little bit. We met years ago at Vermont Studio Center where you were an artist and I was an artist. And uh, that sounds redundant, but we've got editing on our side. (laughs) (laughs) But um, again, I'm looking forward to kind of delving into the world of Heidi Cody. So uh, thanks for doing this.
0: Great. I'm happy to be here.
1: And I guess you know, in terms of starting out, I always like starting out back at the at the beginning. Um, and I'm interested if uh, I don't know you were locked in like a, a, a convenience store or something like that with all these brands or something, mm-hmm. um, or like in a. Sorry, it sounds so silly now, but um, again, that branding is so interesting. So I'm just curious, you know, what kind of things you were were drawn to as a as a kid in terms of art.
0: Well, um, it's interesting that. You envision me stuck in a convenience store. (laughs) You're not that far off the mark, actually. I actually grew up in Paris, France, and I was there until I was eight years old. And at the time, there was one, now maybe two TV stations, one kid's show, which was this um, show called Casimile, who was like a precursor to Barney. And when you went to the grocery store in France, there really wasn't very much candy, certainly not a, a lot of sugary cereals. Not that many detergents to choose from. You know, it just was a different scene. And then I moved to the States when I was eight, and my eyes popped out of my head. <laughs> um, just going to the grocery store and seeing the amazing amount of choice in every aisle. You know, 50 types of potato chips, 75 types of candy. I think I didn't really realize at the time, but I think it was kind of optical an optical shock to the system for me. And I think that's really important to where my work has led me.
1: No, completely. And I think, again, just kind of looking over, you know, all the work that's on your website. Again, of course, everybody's going to check that out. And, of course, we're going to talk about uh, your project on Indiegogo later. But there's so much stuff on your website that kind of deals with that. And so it's very interesting to... um, uh, know that sometimes my assumptions are kind of okay <laughs>
0: yeah no, absolutely yeah i 've been interested in brands for a long time and um, it 's a you know it 's an ongoing critique of consumer culture, and i kind of i think it 's fair to say that everything i 've ever done as a professional artist has been dealing with this idea of consumerism, specifically American consumerism. And trying to break it down from different angles.
1: So, when you moved, I mean, what kind of things were you interested in, in making then? Were you like kind of, I, would, I couldn't imagine that you're, you know, working on the alphabet type stuff and, and kind of like looking at logos uh, like that closely. But I mean, what kind of things were you making um, as a kid?
0: Well, when I, when I moved to the States, I was eight and I was interested in bubble gum. And I remember saving up all my quarters because at the time bubblegum cost 25 cents. And I got a friend to do this with me, and we bought all the bubblegum we could. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And we had a sleepover. And uh, we ate all the bubblegum, chewed it up because you know the flavor kind of diminishes pretty rapidly. And she actually puked. (laughs) And my mom got really mad at me. But I actually didn't start making artwork until, or I didn't really realize I wanted to be an artist until I was in college. So I wasn't in this body work at all until graduate school.
1: Sure. Sure. But, but, I guess just to make sure that we've got a little bit of an idea of you as a, mm-hmm. a, a youngster, um, mm-hmm. what kind of things were you interested in Then, I mean, were you interested in
0: oh, I couldn't group get activities, enough of sports my, or <laughs> my parents, my parents gave me a two hour limit on TV and I could never abide by it. I just could not get enough of TV. Um, I did get bored by it. I remember feeling like it was super saturated by the Brady Bunch. But, you know, I guess when I was young, first in this country, the shows that I would watch were uh, Dance Fever and Fantasy Island late at mm-hmm. night and all the cartoons. I'd wake up early on Saturday morning to get all the cartoons because, of course, my parents weren't awake at 6 a.m. I could catch some TV then. <laughs> But yeah, I wasn't really interested in sports. I always liked art, but I really didn't have any teachers that inspired me in art until I went to college. So I wasn't really an artist, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I didn't really figure that part of myself out until I was in college.
1: We might've glossed over this, but where, where did you grow up then in, in the States or at least after you moved?
0: Okay. So I was in France until I was eight and then I moved back to my parents' home uh, they're from a small town in Oregon, but they moved back to Portland. And I was in Portland from the time I was eight till the time I graduated from high school.
1: And so, where did you wind up uh, going to study then?
0: For, for college, I went as far away from home as I could get. <laughs> I went. I went to Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut.
1: Gosh, that had to been a little bit of a change, or not much, or
0: oh yeah, no, I wanted a change. I wanted a change. It was a great change. It was a great school. Fantastic. Uh, time for me I made some of the closest friends I've ever had in my life there and I learned a lot Um, I wasn't focusing on visual art until my junior year there I took a drawing class from this amazing teacher named Phyllis McGibbon and she was really the one where I had the epiphany that oh wow this is I can do this and I love this and I want to do this I think I'm an artist
1: I mean, was there anything that you were particularly drawn to at first, and i love I love those puns right drawn drawing uh.
0: <laughs> you know it was i don 't know that it was really related to my work she She had an assignment that was kind of drawing photorealistically. Mm-hmm. and I was able to do that in pencil and it wasn 't so much a subject matter I was dealing with uh, because it had no relation to my current work. But once I realized that I could draw like that, and that kind of suspension of disbelief through the image, it was transformative for me.
1: So, what what kind of classes did you wind up taking um, as you kind of got more into it? I, I'm I could be mistaken, but I'm imagining that maybe some printmaking might be involved or sculpture. Or... Uh,
0: I didn't I didn't do printmaking in undergrad. There wasn't that at Wesleyan. I did the um, the second level drawing class my junior year of college, and then I did. An art. uh, Well, it was actually a combined art and humanities thesis. I was actually a humanities grad, which, and that's at that school, is called College of Letters. Mm -hmm. And I did uh, my thesis project was um, a combination of drawing. It was actually illustration illustrations of uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses. More than illustrations, kind of a visual interpretation of I think four stories from the Metamorphoses.
1: Did you decide, like, at that point then that you were going to go ahead and just be an artist then? Like, I'm committed to being an artist or a designer? or?
0: Well, it was – this is kind of part of the conundrum. Like, I realized uh, too late to change my major that I wanted to pursue art. and But given that it was, like, the spring of my junior year, I couldn't change tack at that point. So I graduated with a B.A. in humanities, and then I came home to Portland, Oregon, became a temp because I was feeling kind of resourceless and out of my element, and was so miserable that I started, uh, taking some art classes at Pacific Northwest college of art in Portland. Mm-hmm. And I really did that to help generate a portfolio of artwork so that I could apply to graduate schools. Cause I knew almost immediately after graduating from college that I needed to go to graduate school, but <laughs> I hadn't generated enough work to even, you know, have 20 slides worth of, images to show a graduate school. So I spent a couple years in Portland taking continuing ed classes in printmaking, uh, one in painting, and printmaking is a thing that kind of clicked for me, which makes sense. Uh, and so that's what I ended up doing at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, I got an MFA in printmaking there.
1: And so when when did, when did I guess, that wrap up um, in terms of the timeline? Again, I, I know that we've got plenty of work that we'll kind of go through, but when, when did you wind up going then for your MFA?
0: Uh, I was in Chicago from 94 to 98, but the first two years were uh, in school there at SAIC. So
1: 94 to 96. And so you had kind of said before, this is kind of where the relationship to like consumerism, especially kind of like maybe really kind of took hold in graduate school. So mm-hmm. what kind of works kind of like led that, um, or were there any pieces that you can kind of look back on and go, Oh, that was where it all started.
0: Yeah. Uh... Let's see. Well, I knew, I think even before I got to graduate school, the area of interest was definitely consumerism, Mm -hmm. consumer culture, product packaging type stuff. And when I was in school, uh, one of the first pieces I made was a piece called Ads on TP. Um, I had gone on a field trip to Wisconsin, and in a pizzeria, I went to the bathroom, shut the door, and facing me was an ad ad. And I was just so offended uh, (laughs) that someone would take that opportunity to advertise to me. I thought, if they're going to do that, why don't we just have ads on toilet paper? And so my first big project of my first year in graduate school was I got toilet paper printed on, which is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And I made this piece called Ads on TP, which was basically, you can imagine, a roll of toilet paper, and it's just a bunch of ads. Single color.
1: Were there, were there any artists that you were looking at at the time that were, I guess, particularly influential in, the, in terms of that? Or was there anything that was, I guess, outside of, um, I don't know, just the technical processes that were kind of like really influencing you in, in terms of kind of getting into it? Uh, I, I guess, you know,
0: there weren't artists per se that I was looking at. There are artists who I think were influential in general to me, mm-hmm. uh, like Bridget Riley as an up artist, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, and then... Um, On a completely kind of different level. I was really interested in documentary film. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I could redo my life, I might attempt to be a documentary (laughs) filmmaker. Um, Errol Morris is one of my first big influences, which, you know, it's not necessarily obvious, but if you think about my work, I really am documenting consumer culture in a way. So there was that. But I think, you know, more to the point you're asking me, uh, I was really taking my cues from the visual world around me. And, and I would go to the grocery store in graduate school to come up with ideas for what I wanted to do. And that remains a resource for me. When I don't know what to do next, I go shopping mm-hmm. and I take a notebook with me and I walk up and down the aisles looking for inspiration
1: That's interesting. And in terms of like note-taking, I mean, is it just like you kind of observe potentials for something or, oh, you know, like this logo could kind of like turn into something or like this coloration or?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, uh, one of the things that happened in graduate school was I started thinking about how many products actually allude to nature in their names. And from that came uh, two pieces that initially were part of my MFA thesis, but I remade them, and they're actually on my website. They're called haikus, mm-hmm. and they are rebuses. So they're images, pictures that are strung together, and you basically look at this thing, and you have to solve it as a visual puzzle by piecing the words together, reading them. Would you like me to read one to you?
1: Oh, sure. Actually, I've, I read them earlier, but I want to. I want to have you officially read okay, one. Okay. Okay.
0: So <laughs> one of them is called American Haiku. The Mountain, and you'll just have to picture the products as I read it to you. It reads, Dawn reaches snow caps, sunlight casting promises, all Mountain Dew gleams.
1: And I guess just to kind of break it down for people, these are...
0: They're actually sea prints mounted on plexiglass. Uh, The image area is really big and too big to actually get printed at least where I was getting stuff printed in New York. So they're kind of tiled out on black plexiglass. And each product is on its own square of AstroTurf.
1: Yeah, because nature has to be in there. So. Right,
0: nature has to be in there <laughs> of course, of course. So, it's, and for
1: And again, I think that's just kind of interesting, too, in terms of just that, I don't know, like there's always that kind of playfulness in, in all of the work. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see that, you know, kind of start out early or, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is actually some of the more difficult work to to figure out i don't usually make work that's this um pensive like you really have to kind of look at this and be like wait what Mm -hmm. um it really helps to have me reading it to you because if you're just looking at this you might not necessarily piece it together and this plus is an added trick in there where because products don't have plurals i when it says reaches or gleams or promises i actually have two of the products in the image, so that you have to make it plural, plural in your own mind. So it's kind of—it's asking a lot of the, of the viewer.
1: But it's interesting still too, because I think again, it's a universal, or at least somewhat, you know, universal thing that you're kind of presenting people. So it's interesting to kind of put them in that that position as a as a consumer, but then also to kind of like. Again, fill in the blank, if you will, or kind of make these connections with the with the visuals, yeah
0: yeah, it makes you work, rework your kind of um, shopping synapses in an entirely new educational way,
1: did that kind of lead on to other projects? I, I guess one thing that we 'll certainly kind of talk about a little bit is how how you kind of um continue that exploration or you know maybe how like a series like these two pieces um might kind of like lead on uh to the next thing so
0: yeah well it's interesting because uh, overall looking at my entire body of work which really spans about 15 years there's there's a smaller part of it that has to do with allusion to nature and grocery products there's this work the haiku's There's the series called the Audubon Prince, which is taking the compositions of John James Audubon's birds and reworking them using product bodies, Mm -hmm. like actual spray bottles usually. And then there's a a series called Eskimo Pie, Eskimos Obscure Mountain Tour, which is about the Eskimo pie or the Eskimo from Eskimo pie ice cream going Mm -hmm. on this journey through different product landscapes. And that came about because at some point, I started looking not only at the brand names of these products that were alluding to nature, but also just the imagery of snow and all these different products. Snow is this allusion to purity and nature untouched, it's a really common motif in products. And the only way I could think of to kind of address that without it being really boring landscape uh, drawings that were kind of cheesy was to have a protagonist, and that became the Eskimo Pie Eskimo who kind of goes from product to product to product, visiting different snowscapes. So that's, that's a smaller part of my work. And the other, the other side is really bigger in terms of the amount of work that I made. And that has to do with kind of graphic abstraction of, of, of the formal aspects of product packaging or logos, breaking down individual pieces of product names or product packaging in particular.
1: And I think that's kind of interesting because it, it still completely relates to that idea of like a visual puzzle because you kind of you kind of look at like a, like you know some aspect of a, a, either a design or you know it could be like a graphic or part of a logo or something that you kind of recognize but then you kind of have to kind of put it together a little bit you know.
0: Yeah, I think you know my I, I like puzzle solving. Um, And I'm good at making puzzles. I'm actually better at making puzzles than solving puzzles. Mm -hmm. Um, But I try to make the viewer do some work in terms of processing cognitively images. It's kind of hard to show someone, okay, you've seen this 10,000 times if you're 25 years old. Um, How can I make it new and fresh and make you think about it in a different way? So, And plus, I just like the look of graphic minimalism. Um, So that's kind of where that comes from
1: when you left graduate school then was it really kind of focused then you're going to kind of explore this consumer culture through like again different projects you might kind of take different notes or kind of you know notice something that kind of potentially leads to something else
0: well um after graduate school i actually stayed in chicago for a couple years uh, working as a headhunter in the graphic design industry and i got lucky and that job moved me to new york and i moved to new york in 1998 I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, when that neighborhood was still affordable. It was still cool. I moved into my first ever live-work loft space. And there was a gallery on the ground floor of my building that turned out to be the gallery I would show my work at. It's called Grobling Hall Gallery. And I just struck up a conversation with the gallerist on some Sunday morning. And I had a studio visit the same day. And things just kind of took off. So I had a deadline probably within the first six months of moving to New York to be in a group show. And I had to come up with an idea. so what did I do? I went grocery shopping (laughs) and that's, that's how American alphabet kind of really came to life. It was, that was actually a project I worked on in graduate school, but once I had the deadline, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this thing real.
1: Why don't you, why don't you break it down a little bit? What is American alphabet?
0: Okay. So, um, I took one graphic design class in graduate school, and the project was to design a font, uh, which is a super tedious thing to do. And I didn't do a great job of it, but the the idea kind of started there, where I took letters from product packaging and isolated letters, like, say, the T from Crest Toothpaste or... The X from Twix, and so I kind of started the process of piecing something together, but I hadn't come up with the idea of having it be initial letters of products, like say the A from all laundry detergent, etc. So when I had this deadline to be in a group show, I just put a lot of work into figuring out what would be a good looking set of 26 initial letters taken from product packaging that almost everybody knows. Uh, some of them had to be more difficult than others, um, because it's, if it's all too easy, then the artwork is a lot less compelling. Uh, and I also want to have a big variety of letters. So, you know, it's the A from all laundry detergent B from Bubblicious, C from Campbell's, and it goes all the way through Z.
1: Was there a big process in terms of narrowing it down?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, wa- I wanted... I wanted great letter forms because ultimately, if you're distilling something like that into a single letter on a single color background, you just want a beautiful form of the letter. so form of the letter was a criteria, um, good color of the letter was a criteria because these are actually backlit light boxes. Um, and then, you know, considering that everybody knows, everybody knows the order of the alphabet, your A was going to hang next to your B and your P was going to be next to the Q. I wanted, I tried to break it up so that there was a good color variety so that, you know, there's only one place in the alphabet where the letters are the same background color. And that's, uh,
1: did you wind up then kind of presenting these as a, as a big group then? Yeah. There's a reason that these, uh, these brands are so popular too, because they're, we're kind of always kind of like stuck with them. But then again, there's such... Um, beautiful kind of letters, you know?
0: Yeah, well, a lot of work goes into product packaging. Uh, you know, as someone who's had to re- rebuild the letters, I I have a lot of appreciation for the work that went into the original artwork. And I also notice, because I'm highly attuned to this, that the letters are constantly evolving. Like I went back a couple years ago, six years ago, which is the 10-year an- the anniversary of American Alphabet. That was a 2000 project. Mm-hmm. And al- almost all the letters had morphed. Mo- most of them had, like, Photoshop uh, highlights. A lot of them were what I call action pose, Like, they were leaning to the right, so they were moving. There's a lot of um, design trends that happen in product design. So it's really interesting to see that what I had done is, um, you know, it's changed.
1: And so where did you first uh, exhibit these?
0: So, uh, there was a group show at Robling Hall when they first opened in 1998 and I was in that show. And then the next year I had a solo show. So that was in 2000 and it was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn.
1: And what was the response like? Cause again, I mean, you've got obviously posters, you've got shirts. Um, I, I know personally that you, this, these have kind of made appearances on HGTV, I want to say, and all sorts of other places
0: no the response has been incredible i mean way more than i would ever have expected i, I love the idea but it's uh, it was really interesting to me that it got reviewed in art in america it was also in advertising age it was also in adbusters so the people who were kind of interested in that were people who are doing product packaging like ad age and they're reading about marketing and branding adbusters is of course about brand subversion and Art in America, we all know what that is. So, you know, it was it was very kind of appealing to a broad spectrum of audience, which is great to me because the work is very democratic. Obviously, it's about grocery products. Everybody uh, is kind of in that market.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So the response was incredible. Uh, I got a ton of press. I sold a whole set of alphabet- – it's an edition piece. And I sold a so- whole set of letters, I think, within the first year – which kind of got me back on track financially. Um, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: and then later it's just kind of, it's gotten onto some TV shows and it's just had a much longer lifespan than I would have expected in terms of being covered by the press.
1: And I think interesting because again, it it, it is something like you had said, just even talking about the evolution of those letters. I mean, um, you know, it's going to be something that slowly changes, um, in the context of culture too, just moving forward. You know what I mean? There's going to be things that we relate to it. As you were saying, like the letters will look different. um, But as they try to find new ways to market products and all that, it's always going to kind of keep changing. So I don't know. It's interesting because it's always, you know, (laughs) relevant rather.
0: Yeah. Well, it's one of those things like it keeps changing, but it's like, it's like a slight mutation. Like you don't want to lose your bubble, it's just be, it's just a great Mm -hmm. brand. Um, (laughs) You can change it a little bit, but um, there aren't really that many dramatic changes with the exception of Gatorade. The original Gatorade G that I have is really boring. And the new Gatorade is the G that has like a lightning bolt right through it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it. It actually made a major change and it's much more awesome than it used to be to my detriment. But what are you going to do?
1: Well, and so how awesome was that just in terms of, uh, you know, you moved to New York and then not long after you're, you're, you're in this mode. I mean, that's got to be sweet.
0: It was fantastic. It was just one of those things like everything just kind of lined up. I had, a, I had a crappy job that moved me there. The job didn't work out. So I was stuck in New York City. I mean, come on.
1: How do you decide to move on to a new work? I mean, is it something where you're kind of taking notes on, you know, like you had said, kind of seeing products and, and thinking about their potential? But, you know, how would this kind of evolve into, say, the next body of work?
0: So American Alphabet was a big success, and I was thinking that I needed to kind of stay in that kind of area, and I wanted to stay in that kind of area. I wasn't really sure what the next step was going to be. At the same time, I had to figure out, once I was in New York, how I was going to make a living. It wasn't like the selling the alphabet made enough money that I could live on that. So I became a graphic designer, and I became a lot more skilled in illustrator photoshop and that's kind of how i was making a living the next kind of area of interest to me was actually taking not letters but pieces of product packaging or logos and kind of abstracting them by zooming in on them and blowing them up really big so the next piece after american alphabet is a piece is actually one of my all-time favorites it's called fast pitch and it's in a, it's nine separate pieces that get tiled out into a square, with some space in between, and it's all fast food logos. So you've got a red and yellow and white striped uh, French fry container interior from McDonald's. Uh, you've got the mermaid's hat from Starburst, not Starbucks, Sorry, Starbucks. Um, you've got your bell from taco bell that actually looks like a boob um you know you have really kind of zoomed in really close and you, you absolutely know this is familiar to you uh because the colors are so garish and beautiful and but they you're so you're so it's such a close zoom into the shape that you're getting very little information of the overall logo so it really does require you to do some some thinking
1: so to kind of like explore this editing process further, I mean, is this something where you would kind of spend time like digitally, I don't know, exploring compositions in terms of how oh, you yeah. would how you would cut these apart and what areas you would focus on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just a that's just a design thing. I would, you know, I can make like a kind of square. If you can imagine like something that would look like a stencil. I do that in software and just run it over a piece of product packaging on the computer that I've already traced and I can kind of see formally what's going to look best. It doesn't really take a lot of work to figure that out, it, but it is a fun thing to do. And because the original artwork is typically really nice on some level, there's a lot to work with there. And,
1: and is there any like particular process that you kind of wind up going through in terms of painting these? Because again, I'm kind of always interested in, you know, the way digital tools, especially the kind of like i don't know find their way into you know artist studios again and again in various ways you know some people are very very digital and then some people kind of mix but how do how does that translation work
0: well um it kind of depends on the project the way i like to work is i let an individual product project or piece kind of lead me kind of let it lead me into how it how it would best be presented so the american alphabet was a bunch of light boxes and that worked really well but you know, ultimately, when you have to store your own artwork, you don't want three-dimensional stuff that's like colossal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you live in New York, I had two storage spaces for a long time, and it just completely sapped sapped me paying those bills every month. So after American Alphabet, I decided to go really flat. And even though the work, in terms of making the compositions, was entirely on the computer—that was all digital work—I uh, ended up doing reverse painting on the back side of plexiglass using uh, vinyl graphics, plotted vinyl graphics, as a template. So it's kind of a paint-by-numbers process where I would give someone an Illustrator file. They would plot it on, on sticky vinyl, and I apply that to plexiglass as a template, and then I do a kind of pull-it-up-one-piece-at-a-time thing so that the lines of the painting are really clean and rolling on the paint. And the end product, when you flip it over, you're looking through a sheet of 3-8-inch thick, um, plexiglass, which is a super syrupy, glossy, thick surface at color that's just right there, and it's really bright. I like shiny, and I like bright. So that that process has worked really well for me, and it it's, lends itself naturally to it's a really nice presentation of really simple, minimal uh, graphics.
1: And what's interesting to me, too, is just the way that, that kind of almost, I don't know, is kind of reflected in, in terms of the craftsmanship of the product themselves, you know, the way that mm. you're you have to kind of put these together in such a, I don't know, th- that kind of clean presentation, which there's kind of like a nice relationship there.
0: Yeah, it is a nice relationship. I have to say it's not really that much fun to make those pieces because <laughs> to get a perfect look on plastic using paint, of course, requires some, you know, picking away with an exacto blade and things that aren't quite right. And you get completely meticulous about stuff that, you know in any other process would be a lot more forgiving Mm -hmm. Uh, but the end effect is amazing it's just actually not that much fun to make it
1: i guess kind of tandem to the the 2d works in that um you also have a lot of 3d and you know sculptural kind of works um certainly there's a kind of later series where there's kind of like iconographic kind of like parts of um you know logos and that but You know, in terms of like making and constructing light boxes and and kind of, you know, putting them together in different configurations, like in the the Crude series, um, how do you, I I mean, is it just like you said, kind of like just moving from project to project um, that kind of dictates what it's going to be?
0: Yeah, well, in in the case of Crude, it's moving from project to project with a deadline. I, I got overconfident with the success of American Alphabet and my next solo show. In 2003, I spent too much money, and I put me into a, a real bind. The work itself is beautiful, but I decided since the first solo show had gone so well, why not go for broke and have this show that was really amazing to look at. It's vacuum-formed 3D sign faces that are painted using an automotive spray painting system. Um, I had to make the molds for the backing forming for to get that plexiglass molded to the shape of the mold. Then I get black, back the blank plexiglass and I had to do this completely toxic process of automotive spray painting using airborne lacquer. Uh, I mean, every aspect of this, this production was uh, nasty, expensive, um, sometimes toxic. It was just... It was just over the top. I mean, I really liked the work, but I wouldn't put myself through that again because it was just expensive and toxic. I mean, who needs, who needs it?
1: Well, and just a note for uh, listeners, again, please visit the website. You'll find that in this particular area of work, um, you can find a link and actually see one of these uh, signs kind of spinning. And it kind of reminds me of the way you see them maybe along the highways, just kind of like floating in the air, suspended. So it's really kind of like a, a hypnotic um you know, floating sculpture.
0: Yeah. That, that piece that you're talking about is Exxon mobile and it's a huge kinetic piece. That's about seven and a quarter feet square, two feet deep. And it rotates suspended from the ceiling with two illuminated sign faces on either side of it. One side is Exxon and the other side is mobile. And it's just, Giant! It is enormous, and it was so big, in fact, that it got its own room in the Brooklyn Museum in the show two thousand four show called Open House, working in Brooklyn, which was awesome. It that made it temporarily feel like it had been worth it to do that show.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. And again, it's just it's it's interesting because you know, I think it's so accessible. But again, I I think that especially kind of like keeping that abstract language you kind of allow people into it you know it's not mm-hmm. so specific i think that people mm-hmm. can kind of write it off cuz there's that mm-hmm. sense of like one you know um this interaction that maybe you've had before that you haven't taken taken notice of or
0: mm-hmm. Well, that piece is especially compelling because it moves. It turns out people love kinetic artwork. I mean, it just makes it exponentially cooler. Well, <laughs> I, can't, I can't make everything move and I don't want to, but kinetic artwork is awesome. It
1: reminds me, I want to say, of an, uh, this American Life episode where they break it down. And I think pies that spin in a glass di- display case actually sell much yeah, more quickly uh, than in sure. stationary dis- yeah, yeah, display there, cases. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so we're attracted to movement, I guess, right? Absolutely.
0: Um, like, ba- like babies to candy.
1: So what are some of those other series about? I'm thinking of the the, the series of hats.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. I was wondering what you were alluding to. Okay. So there's this is, that's okay. That's okay. So after crude, which was hugely expensive and I had to dig my way out of this financial hole I put myself in, I, I realized how ridiculous I'd been. Uh, and I was somewhat chastened, and I thought, okay, how do I make something that's really uh, cheap to cheap cheap to make, fun to make, not toxic to make, and is still compelling uh, and still within my body work? So I decided to do this series called Spokes Critter Hats. Spokes Critter is my own term for um, the characters that sell food. So you know, like the the Tricks Rabbit or Pink Panther, you know, a lot of these characters actually wear hats. And that's another thing I picked up walking on the grocery store. I was like, why, why are just so many of these sports characters have hats on? It's not, it has no bearing on the proportion or percentage of people who actually wear hats on a daily basis. It's just like a cutesifying thing. So that's really silly. And why don't I do something with all these crazy hats that these characters awake, um, are wearing? So um, this is actually uh, a completely different process of working. I, I cut um, inch thick. MDF, which is uh, medium density fiberboard, I think is the acronym. Mm-hmm. It's basically plywood um, that has no uh, grain in it and it doesn't warp. But in- at an inch thick, if you're putting it on a wall, actually some serious dimensionality. And it just would cut on a bandsaw and a jigsaw the silhouette of the outline of the hat. Uh, and then I painted those with enamel, which was just shiny. And it was just a really nice way to work and kind of uh, help me recover from the crude the crude process. Um, and I really like the spokesgritter hats. They were really fun pieces.
1: And I guess just because there's that kind of involvement that we've been kind of talking about um, in terms of like the, the viewers seeing these pieces and, you know, kind of being asked to kind of look at them and, and kind of examine them and, and figure out what they're about. What is that installation process like? It seems like that's something that that interactive or kind of like installation kind of based uh, approach is something that kind of invites that conversation about, about whatever it is that you're, you're working on.
0: Are you talking about the spokesquitter hat specifically?
1: Well, with those pieces, I can kind of imagine them being hung in in a variety of different ways, you know?
0: Yeah. I haven't really exhibited those pieces that often. Um, There was first with those pieces, there's the problem of scale. Like, do you want to have the scale of the hat reflect the size of the spokes critter? Like the the smallest one is bumblebee tuna. And one of the biggest ones is the umbrella, even though it's not a hat, from the Norton Salt girl. Um, So I did kind of end up going more or less with scale, even though some people said don't do that. Mm -hmm. So that's one problem. You have like a big variety of scale, and then you have a huge variety of color. And we all know that scale and color are two of the most basic elements of design. So uh, depending on what kind of space I have uh, and what looks good, you know, the installation would look completely different with those pieces wherever I choose to hang it. I just actually was in a group show here in Portland last summer where a curator hung the show and for the first time ever I wasn't involved in putting the artwork up on the wall and he just hung a very few of these very sparsely on the wall where they actually didn't have any relationship to each other visually Mm -hmm. and it looked great.
1: Interesting. Well, and again, I think it kind of plays up that, again, that question for everyone when they see them, you know, there's always that kind of like, I I know this.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's good because it gets people to talk to each other, right? They're like puzzling. They're like, what is that? And they're like, and they're like, Oh, I
1: got it. (laughs) And so is, is, is that something that is kind of continued in terms of, again, kind of exploring the, these, uh, these relationships with, with brands and some of the, I guess, more recent work, um, before we get, I guess, to the, the current, you know, super project that's going on. The um, again, I'm talking about the the pain, the more recent kind of paintings that are up on uh, on yeah, your site, so the the fresh, the freshest yeah, art, the,
0: the freshest art section. Okay, so yeah, this is artwork that is totally related to what we've been talking about and my artwork in general. It's yet more a different angle on graphic abstraction of product packaging. In this case, um, it's a series of work where I'm taking the brand look of a grocery product, but I'm changing the name where there would be a brand name. I'm just changing the text. So if you can visualize uh, Jeff peanut butter, it's like a flag formation on the back. It's red, green, and blue. And then you have the word Jeff superimposed over it in white, right? So it's called a knockout color when you knock out white over colors. So instead of Jeff, I have duh, because it's so simple. It's a really easy piece to get. It's just the flag. I've changed the word. I kept the typeface style, but I've just created new letters in the same typeface style.
1: So there's this little alteration that goes on from the initial uh, impetus, if you will. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, I take the product and I scan it. I recreate the background look, which in some cases is easy. In other cases, it's really hard. Um, and then I changed the text and that's a matter of working in illustrator. I have some experience working with typefaces and I actually ty- taught a typography class. So I'm interested in that. It's just a matter of looking at the letters and figuring out what the next, what the letter would look like that is missing from the logo.
1: Oh, so I'm curious again, these are, you know, relatively recent works. And so I'm, I'm sure you're kind of continuing the series. How did, how did that work in relationship to your Indiegogo project and climate toothpaste and, and would, did that like kind of interfere with your studio work or, you know, how did, how did that process evolve?
0: Well, in, in the past I've worked, um, where I have a, I have a bunch of pieces and I produce them all one way and it makes a show. Um, and because I'm working with disparate products, uh, which I guess I have in the past, but I just decided to try a slightly different approach with this where Depending on the typeface and what the typeface looks like in the product, it's going to either lend itself to a more three-dimensional presentation or a two-dimensional presentation. Two dimensions is easier to do uh, because I can do this type of um, reverse plexiglass painting, which I really like the effect of, and it's relatively low cost to do that, but still very graphically powerful. Um, Other things I've gotten... Uh, You know, I have like the words will be stuck out on what's called standoffs from the surface of the back. Um, I've done some machine fabrication through CAD routing, that sort of thing. Um, So depending on the piece and the product and specifically what the lettering looks like, I just decide what's going to look best for that piece. So the climate piece is one of maybe... Uh, I'd say I have like 12 or 14 sketches, uh, three or four of those pieces are already done. And they were in the show last summer at the Laura Russo gallery here in Portland. But uh, there's pieces that are kind of in development. And because I've been working as a climate activist for the last couple of years, uh, I had it and I had the word climate in this kind of pile of sketches that I was working with. And I just thought, you know, this is something I could really do something with. It's so simple and uh, I'd already done a couple of fundraisers for um, one of the climate groups I work with, Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, but they weren't really that successful. And I just thought, I don't have time to be a full-time artist right now. I don't have time to be a full-time activist. Why don't I, full-time climate activist, I should say, why don't I try to merge these two interests into this project and make climate toothpaste.
1: And so this is interesting too, because like in, in relationship to, to some of the other works, again, it's like a very direct kind of relationship in terms of like what you're, you're trying to do, or at least maybe I'm kind of mistaken, but um, you know, you kind of want that participation um, to kind of raise awareness, right? I mean,
0: yeah. I mean, it, in this case, I'm kind of taking a, an internationally recognized logo and subverting it um, and using that, Uh, kind of optical recognition factor to to raise awareness of this issue it's just it it really is it kind of is the type of thing where uh you know how products are designed to kind of jump off the shelf under your shopping cart this is something that's designed to be eye-catching uh and i'm hoping that that will be useful for the climate activists that i'm trying to give this pseudo product to
1: and just to kind of make sure everybody understands what's going on, too. I mean, this is, so in terms of the Indiegogo project, again, there's a number of different ways to back um, this project. So what, what are some of those ways? And-
0: so, so what I'm trying to do is get this. It's just a toothpaste box. There's no toothpaste involved with it whatsoever. And it's designed to um, be customizable. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have information about climate change on the outside of it but it's designed to be gifted to climate groups around the country so that they can use it for outreach. They will be available for sale online eventually if the product gets funded. Um, But right now it's on Indiegogo and you can just look for Indiegogo and then search for climate toothpaste on it is the easiest way to find it. So you can donate, just outright donate money, or you can have a bunch of different perks. The one of the lowest levels is just a $5 level, which was put up yesterday, just a donation. And then let's see, you can get for, I think $30, three boxes, three climate toothpaste boxes mailed to you after they've been manufactured. And you can get a print of the mechanical, which is the technical term for the design of the toothpaste box. Uh, you can get 10 toothpaste boxes. It just goes on and on. And then up to higher, higher level, Donations. Where I'm actually, I actually have a couple of American Alphabet letter light boxes as perks connected to the Indiegogo campaign. So that should a big spender or an art collector want to really get something uh, awesome, they can spend the money and get something great that will really help us get this project done. And there's also some of the Audubon prints too, which are more in like the 1,000 to 1,500 range, um, and those are perhaps easier. Uh, to live with for a lot of people <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who, have, who have more conservative taste
1: well and it 's interesting too just i mean that again the the platform um, the whole thing i get, it's it 's interesting to think about the way that that kind of become something a little bit different than than just maybe kind of some of the other work that you've done before um you know certainly again it's a it's a way for people that are you know interested in this issue to kind of help support awareness um
0: yeah well it's really kind of a networking idea you know it's a people-powered project i i am really trying to do something that's thinking outside the box trying to help climate activist groups and i hope that this succeeds because i think it has the potential to be really successful And by having it on the Indiegogo site and crowdfunding it, it's actually helping spread the word about the project in the first place. And then once we get the 20,000 of these things made, they're going to be in the real world, which is going to be amazing.
1: And so how do you, how do you organize something like this when there's so many different facets and is um, it been kind of like an interesting process in terms of working with some of these groups or kind of talking about these ideas? I'm sure kind of going into this to kind of make sure that it would be something, you know, sought after, but you know, something that was successful, people that, that, that people would get something out of in terms of raising awareness
0: well there's some groups some carbon pricing groups that i work with that are really into the project and i'm excited about that i you know it's kind of been my idea i've initiated the process of making fundraisers because it's really i feel kind of stymied by the lack of involvement in terms of volunteer engagement with these groups. I mean, climate change to me is like a, a, a huge, huge issue. It's an urgent issue. And I just want to see more people involved with the issue. I know a lot of people care about it, but a lot of people don't have time to deal with it or they don't have money to deal with it or whatever. But part of the the impetus of doing this Climate toothpaste project is to make it super easy, not necessarily expensive, um, just a really easy way to engage with the issue of climate change without you know breaking the bank um you can really participate and help get something done
1: and and so are there plans to kind of um kind of push like an exhibition side of this as well um is are there other works and so is this also going to like culminate in some kind of exhibition as well
0: i hope so i mean that's you know these are going to be sold online eventually at a low cost to help subsidize future editions of Climate Toothpaste in the hopes that it's actually going to be successful. But yes, I mean, this is going to double as artwork for me. I imagine having a towering installation of Climate Toothpaste boxes. And uh, I don't know where that's going to go, but it's going to be in the arsenal, and I'm really excited about that.
1: And I guess just because, you know, we were talking about this before, you know, this is kind of like such a, a new endeavor um, in, in some regards, just in terms of the potential. Do you have any idea how this is going to impact your studio again? You know, presuming that it goes forward. I mean, is do you think this is going to lead to other other projects or?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I don't. I'm trying to do this in a way that it doesn't take over my life like that when I have the indigo go budget figured out I worked with a friend of mine and you know the idea is really to get someone else to design the e-commerce site because I don't I want to stick with my studio work and not be doing every aspect of the kind of ongoing project of climate toothpaste I mean I'm gonna have these 20,000 boxes there's budget to ship them out there's budget um, that's allotted for storing them but there's gonna be a lot of work involved with giving them to the right people and helping figure people figure out what to do with them Mm -hmm. um i don't necessarily want to to be perpetually on indiegogo (laughs) (laughs) or doing crowdfunding because it's a ton of work this is a first-time experiment and i don't really think i'm going to be fusing that much more of my artwork with climate activism this is just a this is kind of a test run to see uh, what the synergy looks like. And if it's successful, fantastic. Yeah.
1: I mean, again, it's, it's very exciting. Um, and again, even just kind of thinking about, you know, some of the, the context that we've been talking about from some of the other works, again, just the way that, again, it really like allows people to come become really, really active in it um, in terms of participating.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you know one of the problems is that people care about climate change, but they don't necessarily know where to turn uh, without feeling like they're going to get over their heads with either financial obligations or volunteer time. So this is an easy way for them to engage at whatever level they want to and, I and, and, and to learn about where to turn. Like this is really partly just information. Like if you get this if we get this produced, uh, you know, and say there's an organization in Washington, D.C. that wants these, uh, they're going to get them and they can customize these however they want to. They can do outreach for the Washington, D.C. organization. If they're going to some o- or other organization, it's a national organization, they can do what they want with them and they have a national group, but they can distribute them to various branches, you know. I don't really know ultimately what they're going to do with them, but that's part of. What's awesome about it, that it's customizable for them so they can choose what to do with it.
1: And again, where can people go to find out all about this?
0: The Indiegogo site is I-N-D-I-E-G-O-O. It's a crowdfunding site and just search for Climate Toothpaste. Can I also say one more thing? Okay, so there's also a Facebook site for Climate Toothpaste. You can go to Facebook and search for Climate Toothpaste and please like us and share the campaign. This is a people-powered project and I need all the help we can get.
1: Excellent. Yeah, and again, it's it's super easy for people to help out. So um, I hope that uh, listeners take advantage of that, and again, you know, contribute a, a morally clean slate, or at least you know the karma will come back. I, I would hope. You know, I hope so too. I hope so too. <laughs> Well, again, um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been so uh, interesting to, to hear, you know, how things uh, developed and, of course, how things are potentially going to be moving in the future. And it's exciting, too, because you really, I guess, don't know. I mean, you could be, you could be making uh, toothpaste boxes for years <laughs> in some ways, right? It could be yeah, that successful. Well, I don't know.
0: Be, well, we'll just wait and see. I really don't know. But I just really hope the project is successful.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, it's been great talking and and hearing all about it.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave.
1: Thanks once again to Heidi for joining me. Again, you can check out her website at HeidiCody.com, but please follow that link to her Indiegogo project. Again, Climate Toothpaste, again, you can search for it there uh, if you're somehow wanting to use a search engine instead of linking. But again, Climate Toothpaste on Indiegogo. And again, you can start backing for as little as 5 bucks. so please support the project. You can also follow the project on the Facebook page, which is also linked, so please do that as well. And to all the new listeners, again, if you like what you heard, you can check out more episodes on studiobreak.com. Again, there is a big archive section. Just look on the left sidebar, scroll month by month, and check out some of the podcasts that you miss. Again, each of those episodes have interviews and images of the artist's work, as well as links, so please be sure to check them out. Again, you can also follow that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast that way, it's very easy to scroll back and maybe see some of the names that you might recognize or some artists that you might be interested in, so please subscribe to the podcast there. Of course, you can help us out by leaving some comments in iTunes. Again, there's a lot of people listening to podcasts, and you might be able to help others find this one. And, of course, another way to help us out is to spread the word, so I can do that by... sharing our links on Facebook and following our page there. Again, please like it. You can also follow us in Tumblr and of course you can follow us on Twitter and send us your tweets. Send us cool art and all sorts of good stuff to at Studio Break. I guess if you're feeling extra fanciful, you can find our donation box right on the homepage and feel free to help support us like Benjamin Duke did recently. Again, thanks Benjamin. You're donation will help with our web hosting costs which tend to go up year by year so thanks again for that i'd also like to thank skylar mail for providing the music the studio break you can check out his website and his artwork at Skylarmail.com. if you're interested in seeing some of my work you can Go and check it out at DavidLinaway.com. There's a lot of paintings up there, and if you want to see it in the flesh, I do have a solo exhibition up right now at the Blandon Art Museum in Fort Dodge, Iowa, through January. So go ahead and check that out. And finally, we have arrived at the end of the episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.